Hello, my name is Mercedes Dormy, and welcome to Through the Portal, conversations around my project, Portal for Tovangar, which is part of the Monumental Perspectives collaboration between LACMA and Snapchat. Monumental Perspectives is an initiative that uses augmented reality to explore monuments and murals, representation, and history. Portal for Tovangar presents a portal between past, present, and potential future worlds, proposing a community healing opportunity and exploration of truth in understanding indigenous intrinsic knowledge. This project shifts away from memorializing heroes and singular events to engage the continued presence of Native people in Tovangar, present-day Los Angeles. These conversations will explore the multiple layers of information and experience that exists below the concrete, all around us, and above us every day. I welcome you to move between past, present, and future worlds as I speak with experts throughout the city of Los Angeles, my ancestral homelands of Tovangar. From archaeology and poetry to the stars, I invite you to take a walk, listen to the conversations, and see the land and sky through a new lens. Our ancestors live within us. From one generation to the next, they move through us with their experience and energy resonating in ways we can't always fathom. For me, my mentor and father, Robert Dormy, is the conduit through which I access my history and indigenous culture. I have learned so much from him and I'm grateful for the guidance he provides around cultural heritage and maneuvering the often difficult world we inhabit. An artist and musician, Robert Dormy's life has been a reflection of and response to his Tongva roots. Here, we are in conversation around his lived experience and Tongva heritage. Our conversation works through stories of growing up in Los Angeles and what it means to have a future in a city that has worked to erase our past. My father has been a tireless force in preservation and survival of the Tongva culture. He continually inspires me and helps me understand our roots, our connection to the land, and to see a future world that is better than the one we were born into. Please join us. From the very beginning of this project, I knew I wanted to include my father's voice and stories as his wisdom and passion is what inspires my art and advocacy around Tongva culture. My father is a storyteller, but he also leaves space to fill in the gaps. As I've grown up, I realized we have a bit of a shorthand between us that is sometimes hard for others to follow. But the beauty in his approach to stories and storytelling is that it leaves room for the imagination for filling in the spaces with music, ideas, and images, growing up and being allowed this space for cultivating imagination is what makes me capable of making art today. A little about myself. I'm an artist, a culture bearer, a sister, a daughter, and a mother, and at times a teacher. 
I sometimes have a hard time deciphering which role I am being asked to fill. And what I realize is it's because these roles overlap. They are essentially impossible to separate. This overlap leads me to think about a theme that repeatedly came up in every episode of the series, the idea of overlays, whether that's the AR monument experience of Portal for Tobangar, a record of the past beneath the concrete, the experience of projecting a night sky in an observatory, or the intersecting lived experiences of the population of Los Angeles. Each conversation relies on overlay as a way to understand and move through a complicated experience of time and space. My portal is meant to be used literally and figuratively and asks you to be open to seeing the city in a new light and through a new lens. Please join me in the conversation with my dad, Robert Dormy, and explore a new way of seeing. My name is Robert Dormy. I'm tribal chair of the Gabileno Tongva Indians of California. I'm also a designated MLD, which is a most likely descendant, as a cultural resource consultant. I navigate people in the tribe, our tribe, and other tribes to work in areas of protection of our cultural. Uh, ancestors. I do extensive work with my uh, monuments. I'm an artist. I'm a graduate of Northridge State University. I have performed uh, numerous uh, tasks in, in the arts, in photography, which is the love of my life. As we began this conversation, I asked my father to tell me stories of his childhood, things he remembered, of when the Tongva culture came into the light in his experience. Some of the stories I was familiar with and some I had never heard before. What follows are stories unique, like many stories that exist in this city. I'm also through a long period of history through my father and mother, and as you know, Mercedes, uh, been indoctrinated through uh, a process of going to to uh, reinterments and people that have passed in our family, some in San Gabriel and others in lo other locations. I come from a big family and I noticed I was the one that was always tagged along. I was the sole person being at these uh, uh, ceremonies. And I often wondered why my other brothers and sisters were not present. But I was at many, many different ceremonies dealing with our Tongva ancestors and other friends of the family. Well, at the age of probably six, uh, my father, uh, and of course my mother would tag along and a couple of the brothers, we not on one occasion, on many, would go to the Topanga Lagoon right by PCH. 
and also uh, numerous places up uh, Las Virginas Canyon in Malibu and Tapia Park. Uh, but back to the Topanga Lagoon, we would fish and uh, for steelhead trout. Mm-hmm. We use kind of primitive methods, but we'd always come home with trout. Secondary was collecting these odd-shaped rocks that my dad would bring home. Then we would construct these uh, war clubs. I didn't know they were considered war clubs, but they were in size. They were we used leather, and it was always intriguing to me. Uh, never asked my dad why we were doing these, but we hung them in the little nails in the garage, and uh, we'd made quite a few of them. But I knew he was real particular about how the shape and the rocks looked. Uh, that was the beginning, really, of kind of a gathering. And also, it gave me uh, a sense of freedom as a child being away from the city. As you know, my dad was born in the mountains. He was brought up in a very wilderness environment. Uh, and so all the things that were in him were instilled in me. So he always liked to go out to areas of, of wilderness and uh, uh, areas of uh, beauty and so forth, trees, lakes, and rivers. I remember as a child going to the Bureau of Indian Affairs office with my father and grandfather to get a piece of paper that bureaucratically legitimized our cultural heritage as Tongva people. We aren't even called Tongva people on this piece of paper. We're still named Gabrieleno, which was the name that the Spanish gave us, but that's a whole different story. My signature on the piece of paper is full of curly cursive that looks nothing like how I sign my name now. I think of how absurd this way of legitimizing people is when my family has stories and experiences that are much more real and connected to the history and legacy of the city. I wonder how many stories were lost within other families in the passing of elders because officially, record-keeping-wise, society has only cared about birth and death and baptismal records kept usually by some religious organization. I've thought a lot about the shame that existed until very recently around claiming any Native ancestry. I hear stories from other people about their families and the shame that existed. It explains why my grandfather was quiet about naming the culture and passed it down through actions and experience instead of explicit naming or words. My grandfather spoke to my father about the culture who we are, and how we're connected to the community. But in my memories, I've had to go back and do a lot of decoding or re-remembering to make sense of my experiences. I have these moments of, oh, that makes so much sense now, when I can bring in together the Tongva culture and the memory. I asked my father what some of his early memories of this connection to the culture were. I was introduced to the Tongva culture in a very horrified way as a child. I became very ill in my body, so my dad uh, and my mother had put me down on the floor facing the ceiling, and my dad got this tube 
uh, which I had no idea what it was about. The tube was placed on my left arm, and before that was placed there, he he burned a circle, and then he sucked out apparently some kind of poison, which uh, I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, till later in life, I realized that was an old kind of ritual. It burned so bad. Uh, after that, I sure I felt better. <laughs> <laughs> how old it, were you? Do you remember it, how old you? Early introduction of something that was instilled into me as a tongva ritual. My mother would take me uh, other issues uh, of, of cultural. Being immersed in the Tongva culture, my dad and mother would take me to the ocean. I had some vision impairment and infections of the eye. And uh, the first thing they would do was not go to a pharmacy or a doctor. They'd go straight to the ocean by Santa Monica Pier, uh, look for these large kelp beds, which there were many at that time. And there were little pods on them. And my mother would lay me down. I said, oh my God, what are they gonna do now? This is some painful <laughs> type of remedy that's gonna hurt like, cause my dad had already put that ritual on my arm. So I laid back and my mother would squeeze, break that little pot and put it in my eye, the water, the salt water. It was what is now a saline solution. Yeah. And little, little things that they would do began to not clarified who I was, but they were things that were very different from going to grammar school, very different. And then she'd say, Robert, we're going up to Kinder Canyon past Sunset in Brentwood, which is Brentwood. And she would get the watercress and there was a little creek in there and she would say, you know, put your hands behind your back, take any with your hands. And I said, God, what is this now? <laughs> Here goes my hand. <laughs> what the first time was very kind of odd. But she said, now you see the watercress? Uh, and of course I couldn't see very well at that time. I uh, had to have glasses uh, by an optometrist later in my life. Um, I went down and started eating the watercrest. And and I, I did what she told me. I did what my mother told me and dad told me at the beach. I did what my father told me when they applied to the sucking tube on my, on my uh, left arm. And later she said, well, the reason I had you do that is because you don't want to gather more than you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. If you use your hands, you're going to wait, take too much of the watercress. We have to leave some for the next person or the next time we come here. So little things like that began registering in my mind. Uh, I grew up in a cement world, but the things that were being taught to me were Indian from Tongva. In many cultures, and especially the Indian culture, the grandmother seems to be there or the grandfather. Mm-hmm. And not everybody's fortunate to have that grandmother and grandfather to navigate them and teach them skills and uh, histories. I had a grandfather or a very close ally 
growing up as a little child because my dad was working quite a bit to support all the kids, uh, the eight to nine children. And Uncle Charlie would walk with me. Uh, I would go all through the West LA region, through the springs, not knowing the springs, but he started showing me the shell middens at the VA, which to me, think about it, I'm six years old, seven years old, and I'm walking with him. I'd love to walk with him where my dad was at work. Uh, on occasions, uh, uh, he worked on Saturday. My dad, so Uncle Charlie would take me and share things that were interesting. And he, he did this one ritual of a Tonga ritual. I can't even describe it, which my dad probably knew, but didn't apply it to my life. And uh, I would have to take a lot of time to share that particular ritual, but my mother was a little horrified by it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was shamanistic. It was something out of what uh, Indians would do here in Los Angeles. And so he mentored me in certain ways, not to say that others were part of my life of, of, of sharing the Indianness of who we were, but I think the outings uh, became more instrumental as I grew up. I get asked a lot about our status as a group, as a tribe, how organized are we, how do we exist as people, and a lot of these questions are getting down to ideas around casinos, scholarships, reservation land. And what I have to explain is that the state of California recognizes us as a people, but the federal government does not. So this means that we have no sovereign territory, no land to bury our dead. We are not eligible for native loan programs for home purchasing for scholarships, or for most scholarships. The general quote-unquote benefits allocated to Native people by the U.S. government. Instead of this, we were given cents on the dollar many years ago, which was supposed to wipe the slate of obligation clean. Without getting too deep into the politics of this issue, I think about the complete and illogical thinking of paying people for their land, acknowledging their ancestry as people of that place, and then determining they no longer exist. My father speaks here about these payments that my grandfather received and what it means to us. It's one of the many contradictions I grapple with as a Tonga person, as a native person, where the logic imposed on us doesn't seem to apply. My dad worked, uh, understand, uh, one of the villages they lived in the first area, they were in the Palms area in the 1930s. My grandmother, or my great-grandmother, my dad's grandmother, lived in that vicinity. So it was familiar with him to feel comfort in a certain area. My dad also knew about the springs as a site in the 1930s and told me about it. And we were awarded four and a half cents an acre. 
many of the elders from the tribes had solicited and asked my dad to not sign in for this $700 check because this $700 plus $24 or so was your bailout to what you should rightfully deserve. Of course, $700 then was like, what, today? And Uncle Charlie was went crazy. He says, wow, look at all this money. We're Tongva or Gabrileno Indians and we're getting this money. So uh, back to land and sites and what belongs to us, that was not proper away. And not to bring politics on your question, Murr, and to make people angry, it's just that why I was underage signing something that I had began to accumulate information. I wasn't even sure. Now, if it was me now, Robert, I would say absolutely not. Why haven't we received our proper allocation of, of land? And where is the land? So the Tongva really have no land. So sites, Kuravangna, uh, Yangna, downtown LA, uh, Kwashna are areas that our family was pretty integrated to Pangna. And my dad, of course, would always take us to Maliwu and not Malibu. <laughs> so those were sites that he was familiar with. And it, he did know the sites because I took you to the Topanga site where my dad would gather water. And his ancestors and his grandmother knew of that Topanga site. Otherwise, he would not know where to have gathered his water. I think all of these stories talk about a connection to the land and the landscape and the place in a way that has, it's like really intimate knowledge that's passed down, really important knowledge that's passed down. I guess, you know, it makes me think about why is it important for us to know and understand our histories? It's, it's very important to understand the culture because I often use the term overlay and Mercedes you were I have a picture of you in the 2003 and which is a cultural overlay at Playa Vista what you have there is making you have an overlay of a culture coming in and I think what was really touching is the day you sent your daughter there after the 2018 you were there at the playground I met you there from 2003 that's quite a few years now you talk about um, the question how to understand our histories and how to to help people understand who we are is that your daughter was playing in the playground that playground now has become a playground for other children from other cultures. Probably 99 and 9 tenths are not Tongva Indians. So the whole village is no longer, the people are no longer in that vicinity that I know of. And yet progress has made way for the term overlay. So you have people living 
and time has changed. And the honest and the loving way is to say, well, we tried all our best, you were part of it, to maintain that as a village encampment in tribal traditional lands. It didn't happen. But for the public, for the future, that they know that they can respect who we are, knowing who we are. I think you have something to say about that too, because you are educating people, correct? Yeah. Over the overlays that are coming. Yeah, I mean, I think about that place particularly, and it still makes me sad that it got, like the cemetery was removed, you know, the fact that there wasn't the, that we didn't have the ability to preserve it. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm excited that you're doing these monuments. Are the monuments for there or are they for Bayona? The monuments are, will be erected to honor the ancestors that were removed yeah. in a difficult process, as you know. So that's coming up uh, shortly. They should be completed uh, by June, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I think those are so important because without that, there's really no trace of it, you know? There's no acknowledgement of the huge Tongva presence that had th- thousands of years of history in that place. And so, you know, I, I think that pointing somehow back to the presence our presence that's not just in the past but now you know these monuments seem really important that you're doing in that right whether it's an art installation like what you do it's bringing awareness that the Tongva people are still here what you called my dad Tata is no longer here and uh, my mother are no longer, she's no longer here. Uncle Charlie, who was a mentor to me, is no longer here. And you say, what did they leave for me? Well, I shared earlier about the trips that they took me to indoctrinate me in a way that they thought they could do the best for me. But now I'm sharing them with you. And I think that what you are doing and what other Tonga artists are doing by art, by poetry, uh, music, they are sharing, I'm sure, because I've heard some of the tracks, using the linguistics, our language, and you're involved with the language, to help preserve and maintain the culture. Without the linguistics, to keep that going, then people won't come into us and say, well, where's your culture? You have no language. Yes, we do. Why do I greet somebody? Avaha, Tatarom. I greet the elders. And I use it uh, as a respect, not only to other cultures and people, but to maintain our linguistics of who we are and our histories of what the question you were asking. I've been interested in the Smithsonian wax cylinder recordings of Tongva speakers and music since I first learned about them. They're scratchy 
and difficult to hear, and sometimes a woman speaks over the music, which is completely infuriating. But the moments of hearing our language spoken, and hearing the laughter, the joking, the singing, it's just magical. My father has worked for years taking these songs, reinterpreting them with a guitar, with contemporary instruments, making them alive again. I also used one of these songs for the Portal for Tovangar piece. I'm currently in Tongva language classes, and for me, learning the song is a way to internalize the words, the sounds, the meanings. These recordings have been very influential to many members of the Tongva community. They remain important to me as well. There's something about the cyclical nature of the recording, the revolution, the movement, the repetition, the way that you have to focus when you're listening in order to understand. These elements all make the recordings invaluable to so many people, myself included. The wax cylinders, uh, which is very interesting because I realize I use the term a, a city Indian, and there's terms about that because I grew up in a concrete asphalt environment. Uh, the cylinders were first introduced to me probably in the 1990s. And of course, I was introduced to the Smithsonian in the 90s under NAGPRA, uh, taking care of the ancestors. Through the collections, I was aware that uh, through some of the people that attended these meetings in Palm Springs, and later at LMU, Loyola Marymount University, that uh, there were cylinders uh, recorded uh, by the Tongva Indians. It, it was so fascinating. It was probably, uh, it was better than any rock and roll song uh, from Elvis to uh, Chuck Berry to uh, 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 Johnny Cash, any of them. The cylinders incorporated the first time a city Indian sound of a can rattle. They were using cans to make sounds instead of gourd rattles. So that's when I first began to hear the uh, uh, cylinder uh, recordings. And I, uh, in fact, I went to the Smithsonian to hear them specifically. Some of the songs. I have uh, reenacted or uh, uh, transcribed our words are similar, but in one of the actual uh, recordings of the cylinders, the man recording or was going to sing told the other guy to put down the guitar. <laughs> in other words, there was a guitar in place, which is a modern guitar to us. It, it's the same six string instrument. And that's what I play with. So I I play a little unique way uh, with my strings to incorporate and to 
carry on the tradition of uh, the Tongva Indians of Los Angeles. And as you know, you grew up with Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in our neighborhood. Well, you keep repeating that, kids sing it to school. You probably sang it in your head many times. Yeah. And so uh, what I do with the music, with the Tongva music, I do repeated versions in Indian and in English. So people uh, will indoctrinate them into understanding the words of what it means. Yeah, I think making something familiar in a way helps people to um, not be scared or intimidated or defensive around it. Um, so, I mean, I'm thinking about the monument as an artwork, the music as a form of like cultural advocacy. I also think about um, and we don't have to talk about this, but some of the other places that you've been able to um, preserve things like the, the Kudavangna Springs or on sites. Um, I guess, you know, I just went there again for the first time in like, what, 20 years or something. <laughs> um, and so I pulled open a drawer and there were all these pictures with, you know, us as kids and Katie was in one of them and, um, you know. I think about what it means to preserve something or to maintain, like holding on to having something to pass forward. Um, that's what I think of, but I, I'm curious what you think of, um, like why you did the springs or why you kind of have worked so hard to preserve or, you know, protect the ancestors. I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear other people hear you talk about it. <laughs> well, interpretations, uh, how complicated we are as a physical beings here on earth. Uh, the springs, has many different meanings to different people. And I'm so happy that you at a young age were again, the word indoctrinated because you were taught the beauty, the simplicity and the meaning of what the Springs were about. Uh, so in my case, being older, I went in there to actually protect those springs uh, as a cultural resource, as a cultural monument in its natural form, as much as it is, uh, to the unified school district. So you were, aware, you were aware that the unified school district was going to sell that complete parcel. And I happened to just for some reason, be there at the right time to question uh, the vice principal at that time that what was going on. Uh, so that was preserved. That was stopped. Now, there are locations that, as you know, 
uh, that we've been involved with that oftentimes one would say, well, why did you allow them? I never allowed anybody to do anything. I have photographs of you where I've sent you where you're Mercedes, you're crying. And I had no one else that I could trust at that particular time to send to be uh, the caretaker of that particular area. And we're in different times now. And I think people, hopefully, for future generations, and it's coming down to where you see the future is a big question that you're asking me eventually. Where do you see the future? Uh, I'll let you go on that one because you're younger than me. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's a good point you're making about maybe there's a bit of a shift and people not wanting to just plow through and move through it as quickly as possible and get rid of the evidence or erase. Hopefully these, these like impulses of erasure are, are lessening. I think there's a, there's like a, a momentum around understanding how precarious the hold the the idea of land ownership is how precariously that was established how arbitrary and kind of ridiculously property lines were drawn and land was completely taken away from um, the Tongva people or all the indigenous native people of the Americas um and so I like to imagine that there's some acknowledgement of that. I, I think um, I, I like to think about land that is not under the control of anyone else. You know, people always ask me in Los Angeles, oh, you know, where do you go or what do you like? Aren't there any places that you can go? I get that question a lot. And yes, there are foundations and institutions that have been really generous in ways. Um, you know, I think of, oh, well, I guess I won't name names, but there are places that, you know, yep. do allow for that. But it's always kind of under like, oh, but you can only come in at this time, or I have to get permission to kind of get the access. And I think my really like simple view or vision of the future would be to have some sort of land base that is sovereign, that is not controlled by anyone else, or that is not, you know, at the behest of anybody else or another institution. Not because I don't think collaboration is important, but I think that. Um, it's an act of empowerment. It's a, it's a place to have ceremony. It's a place to rebury the ancestors when we need that. Um, I mean, for me, a lot of the future revolves around having some sort of land again. Um, and I know that's tricky and I know it's difficult, but um, 
it's it's so impossible to avoid the acknowledgement that the land was stolen if you go like this like a so you know a tiny bit deep into the history um it's impossible to avoid that acknowledgement if you really look at the history with any clarity um now, what does that mean in a city where real estate is like absurdly expensive and land is seen as a capital investment? I don't know. Um, but. Yeah, it's a, um, <clears throat> I say to you, because you can look into the future uh, here on earth, my, my journey is a little shorter and therefore, your perspective uh, is is respected in that viewpoint of uh, looking ahead. And what I'm saying to you too is that uh, on the many areas of, uh, uh, for instance, I never forget the time uh, we were walking in Los Feliz area, and you picked out a midden shell and a few more. And here's a site in that area that people actually walk over that have no idea that that's a cultural resource land base for the Tonga Indians. They have no idea that who was there. And of course, at that time, you were this is eight years ago and you, you have eyes of an eagle, uh, Mercedes and able to, uh, discern and know, uh, the things that you were taught earlier, the fact that, uh, that was the site. There are many places in LA, uh, uh the La, La Brea woman is a good example. And, uh, uh the first pronounced, Archaeologist, the father of archaeologists, Krober, even analyzed the anal, uh, the La Brea woman from the tar pits and the depictions. And uh, in general, they were confounded by giving her general terminology, not knowing that she was most likely a Tongva Indian from the vicinity from that area. And so the land basis and what's up for the future, as you know, as you said earlier, the lands are pretty well uh, landscaped. Now we are compiling apartments on top of apartments. Uh, you can go in any part of the city and you see teardowns. Um, and so where the new influx of these people, how well will they be educated? And that's going to come up to probably the question about your, that you'll ask me about your children and how we deal with education. How, how, how can we uh, educate these new people or uh, whether they're first, second, third generation uh, people here in Los Angeles and newcomers, how do you teach them 
about a culture when they're on such an overlay of cement and concrete. What? Somebody said, there's no Indians here. This is asphalt. I said, absolutely not. You're at the Silver Strand. You're on a cultural mid-site developed over a Tongva area in the Marina del Rey. They have no idea that that was our traditional land. What your child would learn that you teach them, what I would teach them, is that it is called dignity and respect and land base and traditional cultural properties. And those are the things that are important for education. And again, I say you have vested your time for art and monuments. There's other Tongva people that are doing the same. We have to move in that way, you do, your generation, uh, to make sure that these newcomers, the people that are building on top of each other, and, and as the older generation passes away, that there will be a educational base more sufficient even through the unified school districts. That has to be revamped. I think about teaching, how important passing down knowledge is, and how much I've benefited from what's been passed to me. But I wasn't taught this in elementary school or even high school. It was really through my intentional seeking in undergrad and grad school that I did the extensive research and unraveling of years of educational misinformation around Native people that was given to me in school as a kid. There is information and there are stories that reflect a more accurate version of the past, but it takes work to learn and to understand more deeply the history of Native people. But I think it is vital for all of us to do this work and to do the work of understanding our pasts, our ancestry. It takes a reprioritization of storytelling, of oral traditions, of looking at sources that may not be easy. They may take time and work to decipher, but the potential impact is immense. I know for me, it has helped me work through my lived experience and move through the world in a way that is more aligned, more tuned, more connected. And I'm grateful for that. A professor I worked with in grad school once said, everything you take in, music, poetry, news, movies, a day at the ocean, it's all nutrients that you process. And when you make something creatively, these things are present but a new form, because they are a part of you. I think about my many conversations and experiences with my father, what he's taught me about cultural work, music, history, imagination, being in nature, being observant and sensitive. It is all a part of me and deeply connected to my art practice. My piece, Portal for Tobangar, is a coming together of many years of research and experience of learning, of new understandings, and I hope this conversation gives you a sliver of what our world is like and how we move through this city we call home.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Robert Dormy. I am Mercedes Dormy, and this program, Through the Portal, was presented in conjunction with my work, Portal for Tovangar, an augmented reality project that is part of the LACMA Times Snapchat Monumental Perspectives. This initiative is made possible by Snapchat. Additional support is provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This listening experience was produced by Sound Made Public with Tanya Katenjian, Claire Mullen, Jeremiah Moore, and Philip Wood. For more information about Portal for Tovangar, please visit lacma.org slash D-O-R-A-M-E. Thanks for listening.